I'd like to introduce you this morning to a new word. You may not have seen this word before. In fact, you probably won't see this word because it doesn't exist. The word is Christ-fisurrection. And I've chosen this word as the title for my talk because I believe that the two events that we're talking about last week and this week are so closely connected that you can't get a cigarette paper between them. And therefore, I'd just like to introduce the concept of Crucifix Erection. And um, I really loved what Jeff had to say last week. If you haven't listened to his talk, I wasn't here and I, I listened to it this week. It's just, it's just excellent. It's just excellent. The way he talks about the crucifixion, first part of this word. And he called it the greatest day in history. The greatest day in history. I'd like to suggest that there are actually two greatest days in history. Or if they're so closely aligned, it's just one. The greatest day in history. We cannot begin to understand the crucifixion without the resurrection. And guess what? Can't understand the resurrection without the crucifixion either. The two are so closely linked. The one without the other leaves us, what's the phrase we've got here? Um, Afraid and bewildered. Trembling and bewildered. Now, Mark finishes his gospel in a most unsatisfactory fashion. And in fact, he finished the gospel in such an unsatisfactory fashion that at least two different groups of people had another go at it and thought they could do better and they would finish it in a more appropriate manner. Um, those of you who've got um, who've read the scripture will realize when you get to Mark verse 7, um, that that is where it finishes. And there are another nine verses or so after it, but what's the phrase in the LFE? The most ancient manuscripts do not have this in them. And if you read those last nine verses, you'll see two things. First of all, it's not the style of Mark at all. It's like I'd written a novel and Kathy had to finish it. You would spot immediately that we have very different styles of writing. And the same is true in Mark. What you'd also see, though, is that somebody thought, do you know what? All the way through Mark, Mark is pushing this question, pushing this question. What do you believe? What do you choose to believe? What are you going to believe? So they threw in a few more questions about these people believed, but they didn't, and these people didn't believe. And so. so they had a go at trying to make it a bit more Mark-ish or Mark-ing. But the reality is Mark finished and put his pen down and said, right, that's it. Now it's up to you. Because the purpose of his gospel is not fundamentally to tell a story. It's fundamentally to provoke a response from us as to what we're going to make of the story. And that's why he doesn't tidy it up at the end. That's why he leaves it with this great open question, if you like. The girls go to the tomb. Tomb's empty. They see a man sitting by the side of the, the tomb who's probably an angel. Mark doesn't say it, but it sounds like it. Who says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. In other words, here's the empty space where he should have been. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And we see their response to that. I want to 
start this morning, really, with this um, quotation from Winston Churchill. The time is late 1942. Uh, the war, from an English perspective, has not been going well. Shall we say that that's what's happening? One defeat after another. And then, the end of, towards the end of 1942, there is a victory in North Africa. Well, what's North Africa? What's that got to do with anything? There is victory in North Africa. And Churchill famously said at this point, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And what he means by that is that sometimes we get confused about what is an end and what is a beginning and what's starting and what's finishing. And obviously Churchill's intention here was to give people some hope, but not to let them get carried away. Yeah, this isn't the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. And this whole thing about beginning and ends is quite crucial when we look at these scriptures, Mark 15, the crucifixion of Jesus, and Mark 16, his resurrection. Trying to understand where are we in the story? Where are we in the story? For many of the disciples, they reckoned the crucifixion was the end. That was it. Finny. Nothing more to come. Did any of them really grasp what was to come? Certainly the response of the two women of the tomb suggests that. So we'll pursue this idea of end and beginning a little bit further. So, the man in the tomb, go tell his disciples and Peter. Lovely little touch that, isn't it, that Peter gets that mention. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, this is very similar to what we read in the other crucifixion narratives in the other Gospels. What is their response? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Mm. Do you know, I suspect that isn't really quite what the angel was expecting. Yeah? Trembling and bewildered, these are not resurrection words. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These are not resurrection words, are they? And they make us, or they should make us think, well, what is our response then? What is our response to this? Do we believe that this resurrection is, is A, true, and B, relevant? We'll come a little bit later to something that Paul says. But the interesting thing when Paul writes to the Corinthians is that the background is Huge numbers of people don't believe in the resurrection. They just don't believe it happened. Now, that doesn't seem to be such a problem for us, which makes me wonder what is our response to it then that makes us so much more ready to accept it. They didn't believe that the resurrection had happened. They still think this is the end. And I guess... You look at what the women are doing. They're buying spices. They're going to prepare the body for burial. They're certainly not expecting the tomb to be empty. 
They think that it is the end. And this comes back to this question. What do you choose to believe? Faith is, faith is a question of, of choosing. Or as the, the um, Sunday school boy said when he's asked to define faith, he said, faith is trying very, very, very hard to believe something you know is not true. That's not a bad definition, really, is it? Not bad. Not bad. So what do we choose to believe? And more importantly, I guess for us, not just do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but so what? What difference does it make? What difference can it possibly make to me that a man did or didn't rise from the dead 2,000 years ago? So coming back to Churchill, it's not the end because the gospel does not finish with the crucifixion. It's not the end. But equally, it's not the beginning. The gospel starts right back in the Garden of Eden. The gospel's been running through this entire process. It began the moment that Adam and Eve thought they had a better idea. And it's been running ever since. I think what we can see in the crucifixion crucifixion what we can see in this is the beginning of the end it is the beginning it is if you like the turning of the tide the process that started in the garden of eden which was mirrored in the garden of gethsemane when we see jesus obedience contrasted with adam and eve's disobedience that process has carried on and through the resurrection guess what death has been defeated Death has been defeated. Death that has reigned through the entire history of mankind has now been defeated. This is the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of a whole new way of relating to God. A glorious, triumphant, a victorious end. When Jesus returns and sickness and death are finally conquered, that starts at this moment of crucifixion. But it's not the end of the end. It's not the end of the end. We can't just put our feet up and wait for the glorious conclusion. If you're given to timelines, and they were very popular, particularly at the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s, how the end times are going to pan out and how everything is going to work in its place. The suggestion was that there is a moment where Jesus is going to return and that will happen at some point. Now, personally, I tend to take the view that we're involved in that process, that our actions and the things that we do, the way we relate to each other, the way we carry the gospel and the presence of God affects that date. I think it's a soft date. I think it depends largely on us and on the church worldwide as to how we're going to respond to that. So if we just put our feet up and wait, there'll be that lovely moment where we say, we're waiting on you, God. And he said, yes, well, I'm waiting on you. Yes, well, we're waiting on you. Yes, well, I'm waiting on you. Otherwise, this whole concept of us participating in the divine nature becomes a bit of a nonsense. If it's all fixed in advance, what does it matter? 
but it matters because God is intimately involved with our lives and our response to him and our responsibility carrying this amazing gospel. So it's not the end of the end. There's work to be done, and the work is faith work. What do we choose to believe? How do we respond to this story? Are we responding trembling and bewildered, or are we actually saying, no, I believe that this resurrection has marked a phenomenal turning point in history where now death is defeated. This leads us, I think, to two challenges. First challenge is what I call triumphalism. Triumphalism, the assumption that all the future promises of God are here already and are available to us, and we're already living in the full resurrection promise, 100% kingdom of God living here. So this leads us to say, I am healed, uh, please ignore my symptoms. Or to say, I live in victory, please ignore my occasional lapses. Or, my prayers are always answered, some are still waiting for the outworking. Now, I'm cautious in putting this slide up because in one sense, of course, this is absolutely where we live. It is absolutely where we live. But this triumphalism can lead to unreality. Unreality. I don't know if you remember well, how many years ago it was at the time when the, the faith teaching was very prevalent. There'd be this sense of, <coughs> I'm healed. <coughs> <coughs> I'm healed because my body hasn't caught up with me yet. Yeah, or we, we ended up with these twisted um, theological positions that tried to justify what we were saying and what we were experiencing. Yeah, and this unreality is very dangerous. It's very dangerous because it can lead to what Gerald Coates famously called post-charismatic depression. When all the way through the 90s, we believed that these things were going to happen and we were going to see this stuff, and then we didn't. And what are you going to do with that? How are you going to manage that? If we live in triumphalism, we are opening ourselves up for disappointment. However, there is another way of living, and this is what I call cross-limited living. Not cross-centered, but cross-limited we stay in Mark fifteen forty seven, And we come up with things like, my struggle with sin is renewed daily. Every day I struggle with sin. I hope, I hope to get through, but sin is just so prevalent and my life is just, is just so full of it and I'm not sure I'm going to get through. Every day I struggle. Every day is a new, a new attempt. Or that lovely scripture from the Psalms, I'm a worm and not a man. Yeah. My. We're standing at the foot of the cross, which we all know is a great place to start, but not going on to the empty tomb. This concept of, I'm a sinner, I'm always going to be a sinner, Jesus died on the cross, and that seems to do something for me occasionally, but fundamentally, deep down, I can never be acceptable to God. Yeah. 
This is what I call limited reality. A limited reality. And it can lead us to a failure complex where we struggle to live in the goodness and fullness of the resurrection. And the dangerous thing about this cross-limited living is that we're easy prey for the enemy. Because the lies of the enemy, you're a worm and not a man, or whatever else he chooses to whisper in our ear, become really plausible, really plausible, because we just, we agree with it already. We agree with it already. Now, Luke says in the book of Acts, it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we have to balance these things together. Our life is not post-resurrection, everything is rosy. I'm happy, I'm healthy, I'm blessed and anointed, I'm filled with the power of God. Yeah? It, it, the reality isn't like that. It is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, pick up your cross daily. He picked his up once. He's saying to us, you pick it up daily. So I, I don't want to move away completely from a cross-limited or cross-centered life because crucifixion is a key concept in this. We have to live in the cross and in the resurrection. The sacrifice of the cross and the power of the resurrection. I want to read a little bit from 1 Corinthians. We had a very interesting discussion this Thursday in our, in our home cell about why did Jesus have to die? And why did he have to die as a young man? And we got into a very interesting conversation. It is interesting, of course, that at no point in Jesus' teaching did he explain the cross. We have to look to Paul for that, to understand the outworking of that. In fact, one of the few hints we get in the whole of the Gospels is that remark that John makes when he says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have to go to Paul to understand what's going on. And Paul says... Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And those two verses are worth a bit of study, a bit of thought, a bit of concentration on them. But Paul's main point is that some of them are saying there's no resurrection from the dead which is a bit of an odd concept when you think these are people in, in the community of God whose very salvation and forgiveness from sins and redemption, all this thing, are based on this resurrection. And Paul has to spell out how many people physically saw Jesus raised from the dead to make sense of it. But he says, if it's been cre preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. The, the centrality of the resurrection to our faith cannot be overstated. Cannot be overstated. It is so fundamentally important. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He has been raised. You read Tom Wright on the subject of the resurrection and begin to understand what an affront it was to the Jews, what a affront it was to everybody around. Because here's a bit of a clue. People don't normally get raised from the dead. Yeah? Crucifixion. I tried to find a number for how many people the Romans crucified. Unfortunately, they didn't keep very good records in those days. It was certainly tens of thousands of people, may even have been hundreds of thousands of people suffered this horrible, horrible deaths. Only one of them was raised afterwards. Only one of them triumphed over death, triumphed over sin through the resurrection. So what are we doing in response to the resurrection? I describe it as reaching in faith for the fullness of the new life. What percentage of the full kingdom of God can we realistically expect in this life? Somewhere between 1 and 99. Scripture's silent on this point. It does not say how much we can realistically express. Let me tell you what I'm going for. More. More. More than I've experienced so far more than I've seen in my life, more than I've seen in the lives of people around me. I steer clear of triumphalism. I won't pretend to something that I can't actually hold and, and something that's real in my life. But I, there's more. There is more. And I think we need to reach out for that more. Pick up our cross daily. There are sacrifices that we need to make. And it seems a crazy contradiction that while we talk about the power of the resurrection life, we talk in the same time of picking up our cross daily and making sacrifices and laying down our lives, choosing the other person. We talked again on Thursday night about this, choosing to serve somebody else and not ourselves. But those two are inevitably intrinsically connected. We stand at the foot of the cross, recognizing that's where we lay our burdens down, where we lay our sin, where we acknowledge our need of God. But we go beyond the empty tomb. We don't stop at the cross. We go through it into the empty tomb. What I call full reality. Full reality. So let's go back to the tomb. Let's rejoice in its emptiness and press in to as much of the post-resurrection heaven on earth as we can. Because I'll tell you one thing for certain, there is more that we have not yet experienced. And we don't experience it by pretending that everything's great. We experience it by coming to God in reality with our pain, with our struggles, with our disappointments, and saying, I'm going to lay those aside, revisit the empty tomb, 
and embrace more of what Jesus has for me.